Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Let's Talk Surgery podcast for RCS Ed. I, as always, am your host, Gregory Akata, colorectal registrar up north in Edinburgh. And with me, as always, my good friend, Ceci. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Greg. How are you? I am buzzing. Today has been a long time in the making. Today starts our leadership series. So over the next few episodes, we're going to focus on on leadership, which is obviously important to you and I, both as leadership fellows through RCSZ and other yep. partner organizations. And so over the next few weeks, we will speak to some prominent leaders in the clinical community and outside of the clinical community mm-hmm. uh, to get a sense of the reflections, both pre-pandemic, through the pandemic, and how we lead through crisis. And I know you're excited as well about our guest today. I am, but probably not as excited as you. I mean, our listeners cannot see you, but you are absolutely buzzing just on the ceiling. I am. And you've had to peel me off the ceiling today. So on on the show today, I am delighted to welcome a mentor of mine, a gentleman that I've got to know quite well through the course of my leadership program last year and through working through the pandemic. He has been a boss, he has been an ear, and he has been a huge support uh, to me over the last 12 months. His name is Professor Jason Leach. You might recognize his voice from the radio, the telly, and every other media outlet out there since COVID started. Professor Jason Leach, how are you? I'm well. Thank you both for ha- what a lovely introduction. Thank you so much for having me. The, the truth of the matter is we looked for a scale to come and do some work for us. Nobody applied. <laughs> we then we then we then found Greg and here here we are a year a year later and it's gone relatively well. Let's just keep it there. So the one thing the world needs to know about Professor Leach is that when he says relatively well, he means it's been the best thing since sliced bread. Wow. When he says no one applied, he means everyone applied and the only person he thought was fit for the job. Welcome to the inside mind of colorectal surgeons. Oh, Greg. Just <clears throat> well <laughs> no words. I have no words. Thank you very much, Professor Leach. This will be fun. Welcome to the podcast. You may or may not have listened to previous episodes. We try to keep this fairly informal and get to know the individual behind the message that we're putting across. I think it's it's timely to have you on the on the show because you have been one of the leading figures through the fight through COVID and our resilience response and how we recover from COVID moving forward. I think it's important that the surgical community and our wider listeners get a sense of who the individual is, what work you've done through the pandemic, and also what we've got to look forward to. Uh, So in trying to get to know you better, an open question, first of all, who is Jason Leach? So I'm a husband, a son. I am a man of faith. I'm a dentist. I'm a global traveler. And I'm a change and improvement fanatic. So uh, in that summary, you find a wife called Linda, mum and dad, who have created either the monster or whatever else, what other noun you want to use. I've got a younger sister who's a social worker who now teaches social care, and they have kind of molded me into this attempted public servant. And then dentistry, oral surgery, public health. And then a pandemic, not expecting to be in this seat when the music stopped, but I was, and it will, will, I presume, discuss how some of that plays out over time. I'm an amateur runner, I'm a lover of the movies, and a lover of restaurants, two of which I have shut down across <laughs> our country in the last year, only one of which I'm still allowed to do, and it's the one I like least, which is the running one. 
I can attest to that. And I can also attest to you looking forward to the restaurant's opening in future. You're also a proud son of Airdrie, is that correct? I am, although born in Leicester in the Midlands in England, because my, oh. my father was a coal miner from Dunfermline and Fife and uh, married uh, and they moved to Leicester looking for work. So he was looking for an electrical, uh, an electrician's job because he'd become an electrician in a pit. And long story short, Leicester for three months, I don't remember much about it, North <laughs> Devon for six years where my sister was born and then back to... Airdrie, mum was from the east end of Glasgow, dad was from Dunfermline, so they met somewhere in the middle in North Lanarkshire, and uh, I went to, I don't remember much about the English phase of my upbringing, that apparently there was a maypole, but the maypole didn't appear in Airdrie, despite me looking for it, or so my mum tells me, and uh, yes, then educated in primary and high schools, both in Airdrie. And one would presume that you walking through the streets of Airdrie is like, Piers Brosnan walking through Hollywood Boulevard or something. It, it seems unlikely. It, you you associate recognition with pleasure. That's not a, universally how it seems in the country. Although I, I now live in Glasgow pretending to be slightly posher than I am. And I, I came back to the house after running the other day and uh, I was stretching because I'm an overweight middle-aged runner at the gate and uh, at the fence and a lovely elderly couple stopped absolutely lovely and were almost embarrassed to talk to me and said we just wanted to tell you how grateful we are for everything you've done i was almost weeping it was so lovely and if you look on social media that's not the version you get so if you want the opposite of that story you just need to uh, search my twitter account you'll see some vicious and horrid stuff which we might come to in in the questions out of interest, are these the same old ladies that then called you Gregor Smith, Chief Medical? That's a different story, which I wasn't <laughs> going to. I wasn't going to tell, but I'm happy to tell it. They were a couple of middle-aged ladies, and they were absolutely lovely. Stopped me in the street, said, "Look, thank you so much, keeping us alive. Can't believe it. You're just amazing." Like really laying it on thick about how wonderful I was. And as they were leaving, I said, "Thank you so much, ladies. That's just fantastic. You've really made my day." And one of them turned around and said, "Yeah, thanks so much, Gregor." <laughs> that, that must not, have... not my finest not my finest moment i bet greg smith would love to hear that story i told him imme- i told him immediately which would suggest uh, something <laughs> we'll move on a bit in, in in our episodes we have some quick fire questions which is useful to tease out some behind the human concept so first things first what is your biggest inspiration and, you know, you can take that where you want in terms of what's the one thing that drives you most, both clinically or not clinically. Probably my father, actually, since we mentioned him already. Uh, a, a guy who sat his university exams at the same time as me. We studied together at the dining room really? table. He did an open university degree while I was doing dentistry. Uh, he's an entirely self-made man. His father was a coal miner. His brother was a coal miner. His great-grandfather was a coal miner. And he became an electrician in the pit and got out. And uh, my mum, because my mum brought up these two kids. She was an office worker. Dad came back to do teacher training. No money. Living in Airdrie. Uh, so there isn't any question that the, the actual drive and inspiration comes from them. There, he's he remained. He's he's eighty this Sunday, this Saturday. He's eighty this Saturday, and he remains the most entertaining member of the family, much to my sister and I's great regret. And uh, the fills any room he's in. And I, uh, I think he is the single, the, the single point of inspiration, along with mother. 
The apple clearly didn't fall too far from the tree. If he's, funnier, is, he's a lot funnier than me. I cannot believe that. I, I know I it's hard. To, it's hard to I understand. I, I understand. <laughs> I realise. I look forward to meeting him post-pandemic when I'm invited for dinner. Um, great. Next thing, if dentistry, uh, oral surgery was not a concept, if you know your stint as other roles within the government didn't end so well, and you had to go down an alternative career route, what would it be? Oh, it's very straightforward. I'd be Jean Valjean on the West End stage. I mean, <laughs> don't don't ask stupid questions. That, that's completely obvious. You know, I thought about that and I thought, what would Jason say? He might say, you know, I'll be an Olympic runner. I would nope. be uh, an inspirational, nope. a motivational speaker. I'd be I a would... West End light entertainment star. What's wrong with you? Absolutely. I, I expect no less. Great. Next question. Noah's Ark. You know, you're a man of faith, so I'm sure you remember what that was about. I do. Noah's Ark comes back around. Family are all on board. Lynn's on board. You know, everyone near and dear to you is on board. And I am on board because I knew you'd care about that. Who else would you like to take onto that Ark, onto that boat, if you had a choice? And why? Cece, clearly. She's not an option. Jason, Because I can see her on my, on my computer. <laughs> so you're going to leave me to drown, Greg. This, this is yes. not the first time you've done this. Yes, we are. So apart from... <laughs> The two. So my mind has my mind has gone completely to survival. So right. I, I I would want I'd want a, a, a nurse, a chef, yeah, a, an engineer. I, I'd probably want somebody to sail the boat. So so I want a series of professionals. I don't really care who they are as long as they're competent. It's a bit like choosing scalps actually, which you don't always get right, of course. But so so I want a series of people who can fulfil tasks which will keep us and the animals alive. Uh, so to your English colleagues and those from Wales and Ireland, or, or f- further afield to American and, and African colleagues, um, Scouts are Scottish Clinical Leadership Fellows. I am a graduate of that program. Ceci is currently in the middle of it. And we are the leaders of the future, the, the brightest that they could find. And, and Jason is suggesting... Uh, allegedly. Allegedly. Well, that gives us an insight into how your mind works. Clearly, practicality ahead of idealism and you know that speaks to the man but i gave you one person to put on the boat you currently put five people so of all those five then who would be the one priority for you well you've got to have the guy who the guy or the girl who who steers the boat surely Fair enough. So you've Fair got enough. to have some kind of some kind of captain who can who can guide you guide you to safety true in leadership true in the noah's ark metaphor true whatever you want it to be i i, I doubt that's a jobbing oral surgeon with a public health interest i think it's more likely to be somebody who's sailed the world so i don't know tanny gray thompson somebody somebody who could somebody who could actually direct the damn thing and point it in the right direction fair enough i'll 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 give you that Uh, next question obviously over the course of the last 12 months in particular but even in your in your work prior to that you met a lot of people different backgrounds uh, and, and different roles what one individual stands out the most if you were to think back to the last let's say 10 15 years what one individual stands out as your favorite human or your i wouldn't say your favorite scalp because i know who that is but your favorite human in general who who would that be that's not lynn by the way not your wife so presumably excluding family from that equation Correct. families Correct. and friends so so on a 
Let's try and bring this back to leadership, shall we? I, I think the the single most inspiring uh, professional. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to uh, adapt and take two that, because I've had two careers, which we'll come to in a moment. I've had a surgical career and an improvement stroke population health career. So in my surgical career, it was a man called David Stenhouse, which some people in the college will recognise. He was the neurosurgeon who taught me how to be a surgeon. He's also the surgeon who taught me not to operate. He's the guy who gave me me decision-making powers, not just scalpel powers, which is seriously misunderstood around, uh, around how to be a surgeon and how to engage with families. He's also, although he was an eccentric and a chain smoker when I was training, he was also the most person-centered and compassionate surgeon I've ever known. Uh, so, so he he is the he's the surgical mentor. But then, more recently, when I've had done what you could argue as a second career, people won't be surprised. Anybody who knows me would know I'm going to say Don Berwick. Don Berwick is the uh, pediatrician from Harvard who set up the Institute for Healthcare Improvement in Boston, where I had the privilege of going in 2005 to be a fellow. He is a humble, gentle hard-edged quality leader, probably the man who has driven the quality movement around the world in the last 20, 25 years. He was Obama's uh, head of the CMS, which is the largest public health system in the world that pays Medicare and Medicaid. So he did that for two years, and then the Republicans didn't uh, vote for him, so he he lost that role. He stood for governor of Massachusetts – as a Democrat, and didn't uh, was unsuccessful, and now is back as a senior fellow at IHI and doing a lot of global work on improvement. So I think he's probably the the guy who guided the second half of my, if in inverted commas, career. Excellent, and and anyone who knows anything about quality improvement would will understand why he's been an inspiration to you. And we'll come back and touch on on your time at IHI uh, in in the next segment of the podcast. A couple more questions from me. Um, this is Ceci's question to you: Why do you never wear a tie at the Scottish government briefings? It, some, I have worn it once. That's I true. did wear it. I did wear it once, and it, and it was on a very very bad day. It was the day we locked down the country for a second time. And it was an emergency briefing. And it's Gregor and I have only appeared twice together at the briefings. Yep. And it was both the lockdown days. And they were both Sundays or Saturdays. And uh, my Twitter feed didn't care about the lockdown. It cared only <laughs> that something terrible was happening because Leach was wearing a tie. So there was there were hundreds of tweets about, oh, for goodness sake, is is there something really bad happening? Is it worse than COVID because Leach has got a tie on? I I wear ties for funerals, and it's actually since America since we, since we mentioned America, uh, America completely different dress code, uh, it, I, a tad more casual. Although I didn't I didn't inherit the love of chinos and a, and a blue Oxford shirt, but that that's roughly what the men the men wear professionally. And I stopped wearing ties when I came back from the states. Interesting. So you did inherit chinos and a blue shirt, did you say? I, I haven't really gone to chino. I'd have them, but it's not a daily look for me. Of course, the technical answer is I'm a surgeon and surgeons shouldn't wear ties because they are infection uh, ready. And they, uh, to be honest, that's not actually where I don't wear them. It's just comfort. 
Fair enough. So a note to the general public, if Professor Leach turns up with a tie, it's bad news. It's probably trouble. It's probably trouble. Okay, final question for me. And this is a bit of a nebulous question, but knowing you, I'm sure you can pull it together and, and give me an answer. So what is the biggest misconception of the man, the myth, the National Clinical Director that is Professor Jason Leach? <laughs> That's an excellent question. And an attempt uh, to cite some kind of weird psychology. <laughs> I, I think I think probably it would be confidence. Uh, I think uh, people people confuse loud voices and a willingness to speak out loud with necessarily con- confidence is not about extroversion or introversion. Confidence is about who you are as an individual. Now I am relatively confident. I can hear people laughing who know me. Yep. But 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 not perhaps as confident as people think. There, I I prepare before I do the TV briefing. I I prepare before I do a a morning TV show like I did this morning. I have data in front of me. I I have lines to take that I that I need to get over in that communication. That that's not by accident. That's in order to prepare me for what I think is coming. Now that doesn't mean I can't think on my feet and I haven't been able to to learn how to quickly think if if somebody is is putting me under pressure. So so the confidence of public speaking is is a different thing from internal confidence as a human being. So so I think people would perhaps be surprised that uh, there are still nerves, there is still anxiety. The the thing that the thing that still makes me anxious, and I love to do it actually, is after dinner speaking. So when I am when I have to be funny, I find that I find that quite terrifying. Uh, when I, when I can be funny, which I am all the time, of course, completely <laughs> spontaneously. That that's less that's less worrying. So I think that's probably the biggest misconception. A couple of times people, so my three sixty appraisals are of course uh, very insightful, and I spend a lot of time reading them, and uh, I take them very very seriously. But every single one of them since I was about fourteen has been exactly the same. It says he's too flippant and he doesn't change for the crowd. Now I think they are both badges of honour. Yep. But uh, in some spheres of life, now in the rooms I'm in just now, the flippancy doesn't always come across entirely appropriately. So I've had to just dial that down a little bit. So some people don't get the joke. They think yeah. they think some of the some of the quips are actually because he is arrogant. But I but I hope that's not true. And just you know, one final thing for me, I think having had the opportunity to work with you for the last year and a bit. I think the one misconception, as you suggest, and I hope it comes across through the course of this podcast, is there is a lot of humility behind the facade. Well, you're uh, very kind. The, I try. Yeah, the, the, there is the humility, but also the personable element to you, where an individual is an individual and you treat them as such. So hats off to you. Indeed, hats off. Um Gosh, Greg, you're just so happy today. It's really nice to see. And I can see now why you rave so much about this gentleman, uh, Professor Leach. He loves you so that was, much. That was our secret, Ceci. So much. Keep that, keep that quiet. Well, I'm the only one who would give him my job, Ceci. That's the <laughs> Well, um, you've already mentioned um, a little bit about your training and academic journey. So it'd be nice if we get a little summary just to allow people to know you better. So, um, would you mind telling us a bit about your dental training in Glasgow, your journey to becoming an oral surgeon, and just telling us a little bit more about your time in Harvard? Because um, it's very rare to find clinicians nowadays that actually have qualifications in public health. So that'd be great to know a little bit more about that. 
particularly when they haven't started in public health. So, so yeah. let's try and do that relatively quickly, or it could be very, very dull. Yes. <laughs> so so de- dentistry, 86 to 91. High street dentistry at a time when it wasn't compulsory to do a year. It is now. Mm-hmm. I, I, I did a year in Wishaw in the middle of uh, deepest, darkest Lanarkshire, above a Greg's Bakery. Typical high street, full-on dentistry. And uh, realised within about an hour and a half that I was either going to kill the nurse or she was going to kill me. So the six-foot room was probably not going to work for 40 years. I actually loved it. I loved the families. I liked the continuation of the kind of ability to see people over time. And I liked the work and I liked the team. But I realised general practice dentistry wasn't for me. And the difference between dentistry and medicine principally is after you decide that, your choices narrow. Mm-hmm. So, so medicine, we have as many specialties, but we just don't need as many people. It's the fundamental arithmetic. So you've got to choose something. And, and there are very, very few opportunities uh, once you choose not to be a general practitioner in mm-hmm. dentistry. And I chose oral surgery because it's what I liked. I went back and did some training jobs. I, did, I was the, at that time the senior house officer at the Victoria Infirmary in the south side of Glasgow. Some people will remember it. And I absolutely loved it. Best job I ever had. Hardest I've ever worked and the best job I've ever had. And I, I had a consultant who gave me lots of freedom, who gave me lots to do. I shared a ward with ENT, learned a lot of ENT, and I, I felt really included. And that's not always true. And this, this is where some of us get the chip on our shoulder from. So I had a badge that said, Jason Leach, dentist. Mm-hmm. And I was very proud of where I had come from. So you're not universally accepted by the medical profession. That, that's that's not universally true, but I was. I was very well received by ENT, by critical care. Everybody was lovely. I had a really good team. And the, the, the guy who ran that hospital is now the chief operating officer of the National Health Service. I've worked with him now for a dozen years. And we, we we didn't know each other then particularly well, but now he's now he's in charge of the whole NHS. So consultant neurosurgeon, so end up going through that process. I become an academic, partly because that's a slightly easier route for a singly qualified neurosurgeon, uh, because I didn't want to go back and do medicine. I, I thought it, it wasn't the career path I wanted to go down and take another 12 years out of my life. So I became a singly qualified neurosurgeon. And to my knowledge... I'm probably the last one in the west of Scotland, pretty much. There haven't been many others. A couple of my pals have done it since, but there's not many of us. Hmm. And academia was was the obvious route to do that because you could stay within education. You could do training. I did a thesis on drugs. I did a thesis on propofol and its ability to sedate people during minor surgery or fairly major surgery, actually, with the, with the professor of anaesthetics at Glasgow Royal. Terrific period in my life. We, we have video clips somewhere of about 200 of us having patient controlled propofol in an ICU over a weekend. It was, it, I'm not no sure way. it would get past ethics committees nowadays. Yeah. And we, we, in, we invented a system for patient controlled propofol using a basically a morphine pump, but you putting propofol in the morphine pump. And then I was put in charge of one of the undergraduate years and I got a bit bored. And it was about 15 years in, and we went to the States. Uh, and it was a fairly random occurrence. I was looking for a new PhD student. I was looking for money to get a PhD student. And the same organization that funded the student was also funding fellowships in the States. And uh, Lynn and I, I said to Lynn, uh, 
do you fancy Boston for a year? I don't really know what this IHI thing is, but there's a Harvard thing and it looks, I mean, we'll maybe not get it, but will we have a go? She's an English teacher. Yeah. So she wrote the application form. Nice. And <laughs> and I uh, we applied on a Sunday night and I got it. And uh, I flew to America on the 4th of July, 2005 and met who what have now become lifelong friends, six of us. Six fellows, two from the States, four from the UK, a wonderful group of individuals who I, who I learned a great deal from about American healthcare, about the highs and lows of that. And we ended up at Harvard. So you start, you start that fellowship year with the summer program at Harvard, probably the best educational experience of my life. Then 10 months at IHI doing improvement and change, and, uh, sitting at the feet of Berwick and all of his mentors some of whom were astonishing individuals. And then back to Harvard for a second summer and you get a master's in public health. So you, you can't really complain. And then back home to, uh, back to the surgical career, part-time and into government. Fantastic. I mean, one thing I learn or I get from your story is this restlessness about you and unwillingness to settle. And I think that's so admirable because modern medicine and at least modern surgical training almost shoehorns you down specific paths. So I really admire your your, your restlessness for change. It's amazing. Some of that is maybe forced. Some of it is designed and some of it is completely random, of course. My the single piece of advice I've given any anybody who, who is kind enough to come and ask for advice is drink from the fire hose. Just throw, your, throw yourself in. The only people who fail are the unenthusiastic people. Yeah. So, so you're, you're not going to fail if you, if you try and go for it. And that means go, the, the, the leadership fellows who work with me just now, that means saying, can I shadow you when you go and see the first minister? Well, of, of course you can. Um, if that's what you want to do. But if you don't ask, then what? you're never going to have that experience. You're never going to understand what it means to sit in a cabinet meeting. You're not going to be at the chief executive's meeting. And that's not going to change your life, that single moment. But but a series of that opportunity and the, uh, and the people you meet and the things you see people do, there's learning even in bad meetings as well as some of the good meetings. So I, I think I think enthusiasm is, is my principal leadership advice. I, I remember October 2019 si- sitting in Jason's office and hearing those exact words, drink or feast from the mouth of Fire the firehose. Hose. I remember going back and Googling, what the hell does that actually mean? And then it turns out it means, you know, proceed until apprehended. Do do as much as you can. Uh, try to push down every door until, until you let in. And there is a really, really funny meme or gif one or the other that jason sent me once with literally a fire hose uh, <laughs> setting that water into my face now you don't have to you don't have to do that there are p- people are absolutely perfectly satisfied with with uh, reaching a point in their career whether it's in healthcare or social work or whatever it is and 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 doing that for 30 years in some yeah. for that there's not that's not illegitimate that's it's perfectly legitimate and but it's a choice so, so if, if, if you want to keep changing the adventure, then I, you, have to, you have to seek. That's not, that's not going to come and get you. 
Yeah, that's very true. I mean, I guess another saying is you miss every hit you don't take. So there you go. You might as well. Now, you ended the last little bit on your ending up in the government. Um, For those of us, um, well, myself included, who don't know entirely what it involves to be the National Clinical Director of NHS Scotland and just generally the big wig that you are, would you be able to enlighten us on your roles and your journey in the in the government and kind of a summary of a day in the life, if you will? Yeah, so I started off as the clinical lead for safety. So a couple of things had happened in the country mm-hmm. in 2006, seven. 37 people had died at the Vale of Leaven Hospital of C. difficile infection, infection mm-hmm. we gave them, not the disease they arrived in our care with. We, we killed them yeah. in, the, in the hospital. And it's kind of Scotland's Mid-Staffordshire moment. It's not the same as Mid-Staffordshire, but for those listening, it's the easiest summary. And a lot of countries have had similar moments. The Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston had a very similar moment when it killed the health reporter of the Boston Globe. So so there are are moments in healthcare systems experiences where that happens. So that had happened, and we had a new government. So the SNP government had won in 2007, much to their surprise, and Nicola Sturgeon had become the health minister. I'd never met Nicola Sturgeon. And uh, she was a lawyer at university when I was doing dentistry. We were at university at the same time. We're the same age, but I, I didn't know her. Mm-hmm. And we were designing with IHI a, a, an effort, a program to deal with particularly hospital safety at that time. And I ended up as the clinical lead for that program part-time, still working surgically two and a half days a week, doing a little bit of on-call. And then gradually over time, a decade quickly, it moved through three iterations of that job. We moved from safety into safety in hospitals to safety everywhere. We then moved into quality everywhere. So we included compassion and patient visiting and efficiency and effective care. And then we invented the new job and we called it the National Clinical Director. And our theory was, it was Sir Harry Burns, who was the chief medical officer, who some listening will remember, an astonishingly passionate individual for early years and early intervention in public health and another surgeon with a public health degree. So if, if I needed somebody to try and emulate, he would be the, he'd be the one. And we decided that we would have put somebody clinically with a remit for quality while keeping the CMO in the CMO's job where, where he would do public health, he would do medical leadership. So we ended up with three senior clinicians rather than two, a bit like England did with Steve Powers, but a slightly different role because Steve went to NHS England when NHS England became a, a, a new entity. Yeah. So that's where we ended up. And now I'm the National Clinical Director. In peacetime, that is operational responsibility for the quality of the delivery system, the policy for the quality, so safety, effective care, person-centred care, compassion, a little bit of armed forces and veterans just because that's a bit of a passion and then on the other side of the house, all the diseases that can kill you. So wow. cancer, heart disease, neurological disease, respiratory disease, and the policy for all of that. And then we hit the pandemic and the job completely turns on its head. Oh, well, I guess that's perfect timing because I think that is what Greg is going to explore next. And which the bit that I think will intrigue a lot of people, how you responded to it. I guess I'll take you back to December 2019, around the time where we started to hear, and, and I fortunately was working uh, in and around you at the time, and we started to hear about mutterings of this disease from 
Wuhan in China. Just take us back to you know this early, well, middle December into Hogmanay. What are your initial, what were your thoughts at the time? If you can remember, what are some of your reflections about our initial feeling of what this disease was going to look like and then how that transpired through the first couple of waves as we've now called it's interesting isn't it it feels linear when you look back when people draw on a powerpoint slide it doesn't feel linear when you're when you're in the middle of it and when we do the public inquiry probably public inquiries we will we will we will play this out i think for probably for years to come and i hope that's about learning and about trying to make ourselves and the systems better. I, I think we knew from the, the Russell, from the people we knew, our international connections, our CMOs across the four UK countries, the WHO, that something was happening. But I, I'm not sure the alarm bell really rang until the WHO declared a global public health emergency. So the WHO have a series of steps before a pandemic. A pandemic is when a pathogen becomes a risk to every human being on the planet. It's quite a high bar. So they don't do that lightly. So before they do that, they have another couple of layers. And one of the layers is global public health emergency. So Ebola was a global public health emergency, but not a pandemic. It killed 30,000 people in 2014, all in West Africa. So we had one case in Scotland, and she came from West Africa on a plane, an RAF plane that we put her on. And she survived. So, so when that happens, you think, oh, something's up. Turns out, I didn't know this at the time, turns out that the committee at the WHO looks at about 30 pathogens a year and decides what to do. And it looks at all the evidence and it sends people in. And there are 30,000 new pathogens a year. They look at 30 and they declare a global public health emergency six times in 20 years. They declare pandemics once in their history. This is it. I mean, they didn't exist the last time there was a pandemic. So, so the, as the WHO scaled up its warnings, so did we. So the UK began to gather, and we started to have Tuesday and Thursday meetings of the four UK countries' clinicians. So I meet the Chris Whitties of the world, the Frank Athertons of the world for the first time. We start to gather around what we think this is. We bring in Public Health England, Public Health Scotland, and now you're thinking, okay, we're going to have to start to talk to the politicians about about what this what this might do and what this might be. And then you get very operational, and that's where you start to work, Greg. Because at an operational level, we we realised pretty early on from Wuhan and from Northern Italy that this, in it, in its acute form, this is an intensive care problem. So it becomes apparent that the thing the health service will need more of immediately now. It turns out you also need testing and vaccination and all of those other things. But actually, on a Tuesday night, what you need is more ICU beds. And they need to have ventilators and they need to have staff. And that's what Northern Italy taught us very, very quickly. And that's why you were sent on a global mission to find us ventilators, you and your you and your colleagues. Yeah. I think that's a that's a useful summary of how we got to the to the early phase. And I, I want to take you to some of the misconceptions. Currently, that certainly I, I hear about individual clinicians making decisions around COVID. And, you know, for those of us that have seen it from the inside, we know that's not necessarily the case. So I guess my question to you is the decision making around not just lockdown, but the clinical advice that goes to clinicians both here and, and south of the border and, and in Wales. 
what's the collegiate approach to that? It's it's certainly not one person speaking to the first minister saying this is what we should do. Surely, if only that were true. Imagine the <laughs> imagine the decisions we could make. Then no, it would be a it would be a terrible thing. Nor is it the first minister just making those decisions. It's important yes. that when you when you see the the peak of the hierarchy speak out loud. It's, it actually is evidence of thousands of people underneath, whether that's the chief nurse speaking at the podium or the first minister speaking at the podium. That, that, is, that is evidence of thousands of people. Now, we've got better at that over time when you're not in the acute emergency, when you can start to design governance, when you can start to think about what that should look like. But pretty early on, we realised we would need Public Health Scotland, which had just been formed, to step up. Fortunately, we have a man there called Jim McMenamin, who is, you cut him in half in his respiratory public health. Yep. I mean, he's, he's been in this game for decades, and I'm not sure what Scotland have done would have done without him. And there are examples like him in the directors of public health all over the country. Linda DeCastaker in Glasgow is an astonishingly uh, great leader in public health. Graham Foster in, in Fourth Valley. And England has exactly the same process. Susan Hopkins, who's people will have seen on their TV a lot, is, is an actual boffin. I mean, if you want a single individual who's led the UK's response, it's Hopkins. And I, I'm not a public health trained individual. I've not ever been through a pandemic. I am an oral surgeon with a public health qualification with a bit of a loud voice who can speak out loud in a straight line. So you wouldn't put me in charge of the analytics, but you might put me in charge of some of the communication if you were so minded. So we quite early on, we, we split up all those roles and Public Health Scotland would do this bit and we would get analysts, absolutely crucial, to help us with this bit. We would engage with our pals at the WHO. We would have a UK-wide clinical advisory thing and then we would form advisory groups. Now, the UK has some of them, SAGE, SPY-M, which does the modelling, and then we set up a scientific advisory group for the pandemic, which has got a series of the great and the good public health, ethicists, others on it. And then we also have specialist groups. So the most well-known of them is our education recovery group, which has public health professionals on it, but also, lo and behold, teacher unions and teachers. What an interesting idea to think about how you might bring back schools and early learning in the middle of a pandemic. So, and we've done that. We, you, you have led the one for elite sport. So we didn't do that on the 1st of January, but when it became apparent that in lockdown one, we were going to have to start to think about what do we do with Olympians? What do we do with the Glasgow Warriors? What do we do with the Premier League footballers? We needed a, a group that was going to look into that. And you set that up with, with our authority to say, let's bring the experts together. And you need sports people on that, but you also need people who understand the public health. Correct. And, and I think that's an important message that there is a lot of machinery behind the message. And I think you often do yourself a disservice to say you're just an oral surgeon with a public health qualification, which on, on paper is fact. But I think the leadership that you have demonstrated in the clinical arm of the Scottish government's response uh, should not be underestimated. So I think it yeah. speaks to, and I, people might not might not like this because it's, it's positive about politicians and that's not everybody's uh, way of working. But I think it speaks to the politicians of the UK countries that, that they have very rarely appeared by themselves during the pandemic. They have, they have, whether you like them or not, they have relied heavily on public speaking clinicians. 
Uh, whether that's Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty or Gregor and I or uh, Michael Michael McBride in Northern Ireland or Frank in Wales. So, so it's unusual to see the senior politicians, except in the parliaments, which is the right thing, that's assurance and accountability. But in the public eye, the First Minister of Scotland very, very early on realised that she needed clinicians to help her with that communication. And we've, I think, I think we've stuck with that. There's a cost to that, but I think it's the right thing to do for the public. Yeah, and, and if you also think one one thing you mentioned there is about communication, and I think there's two aspects to the communication that is not readily apparent. There is the communication that you delivered to the wider public across a range of platform from Good Morning uh, Scotland to Good Morning Britain, even to the football uh, shows on a Saturday afternoon. So that's one arm of it that, as I say, is not readily apparent. But there's also the communication with a different clinical group. So you are often, or your office, and and obviously under your leadership, is dealing with you know the different colleges that are trying to run examinations for their trainees, and also again different specialties that are having to shelve the elective practices and how we come back from that so i guess one comment from you around that communication piece to the wider public and clinicians but also in our recovery phase particularly to the audience here of surgeons how we overcome some of the backlog we have in elective services and the communication that has to go on as we get through the recovery phase as well yeah, we've learned a lot about, well, let's be clear, I've learned a lot about communication during this period. The communication experts already knew it. It turns out there's a science, just like cardiology, except it's slightly more evidence-based, you could argue. The, the communication, uh, so if you want to speak to Orkney, and this is the example I was given quite early on, if you want to speak to Orkney, there's no point in being on Radio 4, because Radio Orkney is the only thing Orkadians listen to. So six o'clock every night, the whole of Orkney listens to the Orkney news. And that Orkney news includes international news, but it also includes what's happening at the library that week. So if you want to speak to Orkadians, get on Radio Orkney. If you want to speak to Oban on the west coast of Scotland, you need to be in the weekly newspaper because it is the town in Scotland that still takes a weekly newspaper. There's no point in being on the Channel 4 News if you want to speak to Oban. So, so, and that's true of, you could divide that by young person to old person. You could divide that by region. You can divide that by demographic. If you want to speak to gypsy travelers about vaccination, there's no point in being in the mainstream media about vaccination. You need to go to gypsy travelers and you need to take a trusted voice with you in order to help you translate what you're trying to do into that, into that communication. And I've got pals in the East End of London who are struggling with South, the Southeast Asian community and vaccination. There's no point in a middle-aged white guy going to speak to the Southeast Asian community. I mean, I, they they would they would listen, but and me with somebody else might might be the way to might be the way to do that. So there's been a lot of communication with both the public, but then also not just the clinical groups. But I've spent a huge amount of time with lobby groups and third sector organisations who are useful messengers for the Scottish Autism Society. I did just recently on on fr- Monday night of this week. I did. Uh, the Muslim Council of Scotland about places of worship and about vaccinating their community and what, how we're trying to move back so their units will open. Tomorrow, I've got Scotland's synagogue leaders, would you believe? So so you, you end up, and John Harden, who's my deputy, who Greg knows very well, he's still running, he's still talking to everybody that's still closed. I don't do those ones anymore. He's got all the really difficult ones. So he does nightclubs, he does the weddings, he does soft play, he does all the bits that are still struggling to get it open again. And I, I do some of the nicer ones like the places of worship because they're nicer to me. 
in in true leadership fashion, you hand the difficult conversations to the deputy, John Harden. Excellent. So coming to the end of the podcast, and, and we're very grateful for your time, but we thought we'd get your reflections on a couple of things. The first bit is reflections on, and you shared some of that with us already, but the reflections around being the public face of COVID-19 response in Scotland, whether you like it or not, you are, and, and also the public voice, and some of the engagement that you've described. What are your reflections on how that has worked, what we could have done better? And I know there will be a time for wider reflections, you know, three inquiries, and, and once this is in a better place or over, but your current reflections on how we've done so far, both with the clinical aspect, the engagement aspect, and if there was one thing you could do differently, what would it be? So I, I think my my reflection on the communication is we've we've tried our best in there. We've tried to use the skill sets that others have brought and the those of us who are amateur communicators in this field and have been thrust into that and haven't always got that exactly right and haven't always got I think I've learned to caveat more. But it's a real it's a real balance between one of the things that people suggest they like about my form of communication is I tell it like it is. So I I attempt to tell the truth. If I'm asked the question, I answer the question. But when you do that, they then replay it three months later and say it's not true anymore or wasn't true then. And that, that is tricky. So I've got much better at saying, well, on the 14th of March, 2021, the truth was that such and such was true. So that, so that, that can be quite, that can be quite challenging. You've, I've had to learn, how to do that, and uh, an open microphone is a live microphone. So, you, so you have to be careful with what you say because you've got quite a lot of responsibility because you effectively speak for the government. I remember many, many years ago, I was with the Director General for Health quite early on in my government career, and we were on a panel. There was not many people there. It wasn't. It wasn't anything like today's communication level. But I answered a question at the panel, and I started it by saying, well, I don't speak for the government, but I'm the clinical lead for safety and I do such and such. And when I looked down at my space, he'd written on a post-it note, oh, yes, you do. It, so, <laughs> so, so it was quite an important moment that when you have the brand, when you work for the government, you have a responsibility to speak for the government. So you, you, you can't talk about some, some of the questions you're asked. I, I can't be completely free in my in my thought and my response. I can do that in the rooms with the cabinet, with the first minister, we can have debate, we can, but once the decision is made, I am one of the spokespeople for that decision. And people don't always understand that because it's slightly easier to be on question time and be allowed to be your own voice than it is perhaps to be on GMS and have to always give what what you think is the right choices because you've been involved in them, but there is a responsibility to translate them to to the public. And I think in the main, we've got that about right. Sometimes I get very frustrated with some of the, some of the uh, challenges around that. The, the single biggest difficulty in that on a personal level has been, the, has been the social media abuse. So I don't want to dwell on it because a lot of people get it a lot harder than me, particularly women. So Jenny Harris, who's the deputy CMO in England, Get, gets the worst of the lot of us. And I think that's because of our gender. Uh, and we all get some of it. And I, I and it's not it's not even the straight abuse that gets me really badly. It's the it's the people who are just unkind. Yeah. The people who suggest you're doing this for the wrong motives or you're somehow against their particular 
sector or their bit of the puzzle. And that can that can grind you down, to be honest. So you have to avoid those ones. You just watch the ones where the baby's looking at your advert and giggling and laughing. And the old people are saying how wonderful you are. And that builds you up again and you get up the next day and keep going. I think that's a key thing that gets lost sometimes uh, through all of this, that behind the title uh, National Clinical Director is a, is a human, uh, behind the, you know, the personality that is Jason Leach is a person there. Um, and that person is trying to do the best they can with the tools they've got and the information they have at the time. And, you know, we just have to respect that sometimes and appreciate the good that has been done by not just clinicians, but politicians as well and other public health sector uh, individuals. And, you know, that gratitude should always be there. Just one final question. Actually, I've got two final questions, one serious and one's not. The serious question first, you obviously lead a big team of individuals. What are your reflections on that managing such a big team and the mentorship that you provide to individuals like myself and Thomas Lamont? So, so actually, my tactic is to lead a very small team. Now, that might sound slightly patronizing, but that, that's what I try and do. I try not to lead a big team because it, that way lies real trouble. So I, I am very uncomfortable with, with lots of direct reports. I, I have an, a fantastic deputy clinical lead and a fantastic deputy policy lead who is Linda Pollock, who runs the piece of the puzzle that is the policy department. And then around them, we have other clinicians. So a couple of leadership fellows who have stayed on, the, the, uh, the B team fellows, Greg and Thomas, <laughs> who, have, who, have stayed, who have stayed with us. But now when Ceci's finished, we may get, we may get some decent people. Let's, let's not crowd uh, the Yeah, field. finally. <laughs> come in. Yeah. Uh, and then under, under them, of course, there are hundreds of people. And I, I try and engage with them. I, I try and be as present as I can with, Q&As with, with popping into their team meetings with all of those things you would expect everybody to do, particularly in this, in this weird world where you can't just go for coffee and buy everybody cakes, but it, it, to try and engage with that. But I think one of the tricks of leadership, and my, it's back to my dad, full circle, it's back to my dad. He, 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 was, he is a fantastic delegator, and some would say to his detriment, but I, I think I'm pretty good at that. So I have I have the most wonderful private secretary in the government. She's the only private secretary who gets to choose who she works for rather than being chosen by the senior leader in the government. So I was, I, I was very, very privileged to get her to, to, for me to get to work for her. And she manages my day. She manages the people. She keeps away a lot of the abuse. And then I have a series of people who do stuff like the briefings, like the, the wonderful first minister's briefing unit who provide all of that data for us every day before we stand at that podium. So there's an army of people. It's really, really important to acknowledge them. And I am, at, at some level, the, the front guy. And that, that's not to demean that bit of the puzzle. You, you couldn't do this without the front guy, but you, neither could you do it without the army of analysts who are, who are providing the briefing before you go and do that, or DOT, who's making sure you don't have four things in your diary at the same time. Now, moving on, just back to focusing on, on you as, as a human being, um, you mentioned, um, well, Greg mentioned about the, the human behind the job, and you've kind of alluded to, to this um, earlier in the podcast about, you know, knowing yourself. It'd be very interesting to know someone who is as busy as you must be, how you manage stress and maintain a good work-life balance. And I'd be grateful to hear about that because I'm sure there's so much learning that we can take from that. 
Well, I'm not sure I'm the best example. And the first thing is is that in my answer is slightly patronizing because it's important to recognize there's a lot of people having a harder pandemic than me. I mean, I'm, I, there's a lot of people working harder than me. I mean, a surgical shift, a care home shift, a shift in a supermarket. I mean, these are these are proper hard work. If go in an ambulance on Saturday night in Glasgow, particularly this Saturday night that's just passed, that's a shift. Yeah. I've got a job that pays well. I've got central heating. I've got Sainsbury's that delivers. I've got Uber Eats if I need it. And I've got a wife who's very supportive. So so we shouldn't overestimate the scale of these jobs. But the, the job is big. There's high stakes. It, I haven't had a lot of time off, et cetera, et cetera. And I, it, it reminds me actually of being on call when I was a junior surgeon, when I was when I was an SHO. It feels like that kind of intensity. Yeah. It, it's broader but it feels like that level of intensity every day. And so there's, there's a buzz from that. There's a, there's a kind of energy you get from that. And there's also sometimes you just want to lie on the sofa and forget. And so the way I manage it, Sensi, is I eat three meals a day, I sleep for eight hours, yeah. and I run 5K. And if I can do those three things, then I can pretty much go forever. I mean, the, the, the nutritionists and the psychologists would tell me, actually, you can't go forever, but... I, I I can go for longer if I do those three things. And I've, I've also got a very balanced uh, family who I speak to, who as soon as I suggest I'm getting ideas above my station, then they, my legs get cut from under me. You can't be the son of a Fife coal miner without having to take some abuse in your, in your life. And he, he makes sure, he makes sure I, he, they're proud, but they're, they're not proud every day. Let's be clear. That's fantastic. I'd love to meet your family. They sound like real salt of the earth, no nonsense, don't get get above your station sort of people. That is fantastic. Your, your, your challenge would your challenge would be getting a word in, Sissy. Oh, my right. sister and my father. My sister <laughs> and my father both speak more than me. So oh my I, I, I can't get a word in. That's not possible. Unbelievable. Now this I really have to see. Um well, I think you've been absolutely fantastic, Professor Leach, and thank you so much for giving up so much of your time to us. And I'm sure our listeners, um, Greg and I certainly, have thoroughly enjoyed speaking to you and learning more about your life. I mean, what would you say, Greg? Yeah, I guess it was just to give you a platform for one final message to the audience. As, as you know, a lot of them will be surgeons, dentists, yeah perioperative care practitioners, some of whom had to be redeployed to cover intensive care units as part of our expansion program and our resilience, and also to the wider public. What would your message as National Clinical Director be? So it feels completely inadequate, doesn't it? If anybody's lasted to this point, though, the two people who are still listening, perhaps my my fundamental message is one of gratitude. It's, It's gratitude for those who have kept the health and social care system moving and have uh, saved lives, literally, uh, in operating rooms and intensive care units, in GP practices, in dental practices all over the country. But but also those who have shown compassion to their neighbours, not just those who they treat. So so the, I, I live quite near the Sikh temple in, in Glasgow. And uh, they, were, they were cooking, for months, they were cooking 3,000 curries a day and sending them out to all people who couldn't leave their homes. Churches with food banks out their back door, when, they, when they're not allowed to worship in the building, their food bank still exists. Or the Narcotics Anonymous class that meets in the community centre, led by a doctor who's on a day off. Or, or whatever, that, that kind of community and, and kindness that you have all the time, 
but the pandemic just I think exposes more because we because we've had to do it more because there are more lonely people and there are more people who can't do what they would conventionally do and so so my fundamental message is one of of gratitude and and hope we are we are going to get out of this there is light at the end of our tunnel and it's not a train it is actually a, a hopefully a better version of what we left you're here and on behalf of the college Ceci and I also our message to you is one of gratitude gratitude for what you continue to do with Scotland but also the wider United Kingdom and the wider world and also gratitude for your help start from a selfish point of view in facilitating some of our exams coming back and the continued interaction and engagement you will have with our college and colleges across the UK so thank you Yes, thank you. Here, here. Very, very nicely put, Greg. Um, right, guys, that's it for us. Um, if you have any questions or comments, as always, we still have our email address. That's comms at rcsed.ac.uk, which is c-o-m-m-s at rcsed.ac.uk. Goodbye for now. And once again, thank you to Professor Leach. And till next time, stay safe and please be kind to each other. Bye, everyone. I guess.